This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where we're examining regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the challenges that individuals confront and the solutions they discover as they strive to build resilient communities in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. To peel back the layers of what's happening now and around the world and to add fascinating historical context, I sat down with Dr. David Gray. He's a visiting professor of water policy at Oxford University and recent past member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Water Security. Professor Gray, can you tell us how do you define water security risks and why do people believe that sustainable growth is one of the most important frames for understanding water security? Well, we, we think in terms, uh, we, we think of water security in terms of risk. Um, we, we have a sort of working definition that, that water security well, um, is about tolerable water-related risks to society broadly, society being society with all its values, um, including, including social, environmental values, cultural values. Let's think in, in terms of Amartya Sen's ideas on, on um, the two freedoms. So water security is the freedom from in, intolerable water-related risks. And it's the freedom to um, enjoy um, the opportunities that come from the unconstrained opportunities that, that come from the management of those risks. And what we can see is that countries that are water insecure have significantly constrained um, economic growth and development, um, and in fact, I can take that a step further and, and make the case that parts of the world that are characterized by complex water systems, water resources systems, complex hydrology, um, unpredictable uh, rainfall and runoff, high levels of risk of drought and flood, these are the poorest parts of the world. So these are, these are parts of the world where we've got extreme variability and complexity, very hard to manage, to model, to understand. Um, we need a great deal of information and science. Much of the science we have in the northern world does not function very well. So the global circulation models we use, for example, for, for climate change projections, when we apply those to river basins in Africa and in, in much of southern Asia, we get very extraneous results. We get plus 50%, minus 50% around a mean. So the tools that we've developed in the north, the hydrometric tools, the, the rainfall prediction tools, the drought and flood management tools, don't work very well. Um, we need more advanced science, but we're working in poorer countries where the capacity to develop that science, um, to apply that science, is significantly lower. If we go global then and think about the larger context of climate change, why are we talking about water security right here and right now while we're sitting in Washington, D.C.? Well, we, those of us that have water don't think about it very much. Adam Smith said that, that water has great worth but no value, and diamonds have great value but no worth. Um, if you're without water for a day, you will give all of your wealth for a glass of water. If you're, if you're dying in a desert, you'll give nothing for a, for a bag full of diamonds. As we look across the world, first of all, we need to understand that just 0.01% of the, of the water stock we have on this planet is liquid fresh water. All terrestrial life depends on that 0.01% of our water stock that is liquid and fresh, and that without it, we don't live very long. 
no planetary life lives very long. And it's a stock that is being damaged. It's a stock that's being polluted. It's being abused in many ways. When we don't look after landscapes, we get much more rap rapid runoff. When we store unwisely, and we must store water, variability means we must store water. We have no choice but to store. Maybe not necessarily just water. We can store perhaps food, we can store perhaps energy, we can store money, um, all of which can help us to buffer the risks of, of high levels of variability. If you are uncertain of the rainfall tomorrow, you'll fill two glasses today. You'll drink a glass today and a, and a glass tomorrow. The question as to whether large infrastructure is good or bad is, is much debated. Um, most rich countries have developed large dams, and many of them. The United States is perhaps ahead of the game with, over everybody else on, on that scale. Poor countries have been told that this was a terrible mistake and they shouldn't do it. There's a lot of concern. Uh, there's a sense that I do what I say, not, not what I did. But on the other hand, we know that there are significant consequences of changing the hydrology of major river systems. But we also know that the alternatives to, to renewable energy and, and hydropower is essentially renewable. The alternatives are not necessarily good ones, in, in particular the wide use of coal, for example. When we talk about water stresses, uh, give me a sense of what's happening now in the world. And when we look around the globe, what are we seeing in terms of water stress regions? What are the hot spots? Right now we have significant drought in southern Africa. So most of the countries of southern Africa are hit by a drought that has damaged the harvest, that cattle are suffering, that livelihoods are suffering, and people need food imports, and there's been a call for $2 billion worth of, of food aid into southern African countries. At the same time, we've had terrible floods, floods, floods in North Korea last month, tens of thousands of homes severely damaged, floods in Haiti as a consequence of Hurricane Matthew, almost 1,000 lives lost mostly because of flooding and flood-related, hurricane-related damage, but a large part of that was through flooding. If we look at any moment in time, we will find across the world, and in particular in the southern world, serious floods and serious droughts and people dying as a consequence. This is in real time. At the same time, just in the last few days, we've had some very loud noises um, from India and Pakistan on a dispute on the Indus. Because of a terrorist incident inside Kashmir, India, there has been loud rhetoric from Indian leadership about the Indus and about the 1960 treaty, a treaty that's 56 years old. It stood the test of time. It's been well maintained. The countries have met all the obligations under the treaty, more or less. But there's been, there's been talk in the, in the press about withdrawing from the treaty. The consequences of that would be terrifying. Pakistan is, is a great river in a desert. And life, all lives and livelihoods depend on, on, on that, that river. So we all hope and, and we believe that there will be peaceful resolution of these sorts of issues. But, but this sort of thing is growing. And the similar story on the Nile with Ethiopia developing hydropower, the base of the, of the, um, the mountains on the Blue Nile, where the hydropower potential is very substantial and fears downstream in Egypt in particular that this will impact the flows in Egypt. And the likelihood is that in the short run during filling, there's, there's an issue of co cooperation to ensure that that filling is, do is done well. But over the longer term, if the countries can work together, I believe that it can be, be a win-win solution for both of them. Once again, we, when we look across the world, we can see all sorts of ways in which water impacts health, life, security, political relationships, and economic development. Okay, so let's go back to Asia, and specifically China. What's a country like China doing 
in the face of climate change with its demands downstream and its arid north and its wet south. What are they doing in the face of some of these grave water challenges? China and water is a fascinating and, and lengthy story. I mean, if we look at, the, at what we all call the four great river civilizations of 5,000 years ago in the Nile, and we still have a civilization in the Nile strong, Mesopotamia, the, the land between two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, the, the great Indus civilization of 5,000 years ago. Now, of those civilizations as we knew them, none of those survive in the same way today, whereas China was the, the area 5,000 years ago where we had a, the fourth great river civilization on the Yellow River, also on the Yangtze. And there's been a continuous history of emperors who succeeded in managing floods and ensuring that there was water for food production. They became great emperors and they became, became legends, a 5,000-year-old story of that happening. And the emperors that failed to do that very quickly were no longer emperors. So China today, China shares 111, I think that's right, 111 rivers and lakes with 17 neighboring countries. I think that's right too. Um, it's upstream on most of those rivers and lakes. And China voted against the UN Convention on the Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses in, in the UN General Assembly in 1997. This was just adopted, I think, in 2013, 14, 35 ratifications. But China has been doing a lot of thinking and analysis of the options for working with neighbors. One river basin, which I know pretty well and have been working on extensively, is the Mekong. I've been a member of an independent panel of experts to the Mekong River Commission and the Basin Development Plan. And there's been concern that China, build, first of all, building dams on the Lansang River, which is the, the very long stretch of the upper, upper Mekong that comes out of Tibet and flows down to join the Mekong mainstream um, at the border with Laos and, and Thailand. China over the last year or two has opened up massively, so has, has invited participation of riparian states, officials from riparian states, to visit the upper, the, the Lansang River and, and visit the hydropower stations. Only three weeks ago I was traveling 50 kilometers, 50 miles, 80 kilometers on the Lansang River with officials from Myanmar, from Thailand, Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam, all of whom expressed pleasure and, and surprise to be invited and to have such frank conversations, to visit hydropower plants, to go down into, into turbine houses, and to talk about the operation of these structures to provide benefits downstream. Um, earlier this year, China made a special release during a very dry season in the Lower Mekong, and that was in the spring of this year. First time that's happened. There was a substantial cost in terms of lost hydropower, which the Chinese power developer absorbed, was instructed to absorb. So this is a shift. It's a shift from unilateral action to cooperation. It's an understanding that futures lie together. And, and there's been lots of statements by China that, that it's one river system, the Lansang Mekong, and management together is possible and, and is necessary. And we've had that from political leaders in a number of meetings over the last couple of years. So that's a very strong point of light. And my belief is that many countries are beginning to realize that futures together are win-win futures because if you work together on the natural resources you share, and in particular rivers where there's always been fear and suspicion, if you work together, that everybody can win. It opens doors for many other economic opportunities between states. And I think that's true on the Ganges. India needs or would like to have gas, for example, from Myanmar. Chittagong port is a, is a much better port than Calcutta, which is silting, so it's a great port on the eastern side of South Asia. Railway and road access to the, 
to the northeast, to Assam, would be greatly accelerated by transit across, across Bangladesh. So deals on water which open up other deals for infrastructure, for environmental development, for transport and so on and locking these things together. And we call this benefit sharing, that if you try and negotiate just over water, it can get very, very difficult because it's seen as a zero-sum game. Um, and as a water person, my own very strongly held mantra is that all of us, every human being on this planet, every nation, every business, we have rights to water. We can't survive without water. We all have rights, but we also have responsibilities. And those responsibilities are at least as important as the rights that we have. And that countries have rights sovereign rights to water, but they have sovereign responsibilities um, to others that would use that water. So we have this massive stress uh, on the systems today, but looking ahead, say 10 or 20 or 40 years, what's the world look like? Will we be seeing a world with more cooperation or with less? And what's the water world look like? Well, I think we need to recognize that with current UN projections suggesting that in Africa at current um, population growth rates, but there could be 3.5 billion people on the continent by 2100, which is one person in three on the planet living in Africa. And that unsustainable livelihoods are widespread across the continent. And part of that is because of this complexity that I've been speaking about, a very complex climate system that's very difficult to project, high energy convective storms that have, whose tracks are very hard to forecast. Okay, so what makes the challenges and opportunities in Africa unique when it comes to water stress? Africa has a special challenge. First, because it's one part of the world where we know that the climate system is extremely complex. And Africa is the only, the only large continental landmass that, and it's very large. I mean, Africa is much larger than we imagine because we look at maps which don't show a, a, a rational projection. We can fit all of Australia, all of the United States, all of India, and all of Europe into Africa, those two areas are roughly the same. So we have, we've got complexity in terms of its hydrological systems and we, we continue to have rapid population growth. The one curve that hasn't begun to level off yet. Unsustainable livelihoods as a consequence of the hydrological complexity and variability are fairly widespread across the continent. And the consequences of this is populations grow and people find it harder and harder to feed themselves and, and traditional water systems such as Lake Chad are drying up is that people are moving further and further to try and find water and people are brushing up against other people and we're seeing conflict, we're seeing dispute around water and we've got significant evidence of, of this in different parts of the continent. For example in Central African Republic and Cameroon and Chad we've got pastoralists up against agriculturalists both competing over the same land and increasing population numbers. The challenge clearly is to understand the, the science of the problem better, to be able to have the tools that are needed to project and manage this vari great variability, the potential to leapfrog using leapfrog technologies, widespread use in Africa now of, of smartphones, so the potential to, to introduce completely novel and innovative solutions. And in Africa, there's some very innovative solutions underway right now with smartphones, such as mobile banking, which began in Africa and is beginning to move back into other parts of the world out of Africa. So Africa can be a, a hotbed of, of innovation in hydrological monitoring, measurement, modeling, and planning because it's the most complex system that we have. That's what it needs. Um, my belief is that we need centers of excellence across Africa in universities and in research institutes that can grapple with this subject. And I'm involved in a program out of Oxford University in the UK that is very specifically targeting supporting 
countries in Africa and South Asia in building capacities to increase, enhance water security, particularly for poor people. So the challenge is big. It's not an irresolvable challenge. It's a challenge that can and must be solved. If it's not solved, my own belief is that migration is the most rational and likely solution. And that the story that we have out of Africa is a story of, of migration. In fact, right back with the current archaeological and anthropological thinking is that all her early hominids came from Africa and that hominins, the modern humans, are a consequence of the rise and fall of lakes in East Africa caused by dramatic climate shifts coupled with volcanic activity and that this resulted in speciation, rapid expansion of the number of hominid species. It resulted in encephalization, the increase in, in the size of the brain, the cranial increases, and dispersal. Current archaeological, anthropological research and publications show a series of, of dispersals at key moments of hominids across, across the world, going east first, going into the Fertile Crescent, going east into Asia, even into Australia before they went into, they turned and came out of Asia into Europe largely because of the Ice Age. So Africa, as a source of humanity, as a place where humanity now struggles, and part of that struggle is related to water, undoubtedly, and unresolved that could result in, in dispute and possibly conflict and certainly migration. And there are now a large number of people crossing the Sahara on the coast in Libya, seeking a better life in Europe, and the Europeans building walls, uh, naval ships in the Mediterranean at, at great cost. If just a portion of those costs were, were being spent on improving livelihoods in Africa and providing opportunities and providing su support to the science and to the, the centers of excellence we've been talking about, Africa and the world would be a better place. So we're here at an event called the Global Commons, looking at planetary boundaries at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, there's been some recent renewed interest in the role that water plays in the global commons. Could you speak to that, um, add some more clarity? How is water a global resource and not just a regional resource? There's been a, always been a bit of a challenge for us because so many individuals, nations, believe that water is sovereign, that this is our water. even at the time of the Romans, they defined in the, in the Roman Digest in the third century, they defined water in different ways. And static water, non-flowing water, was private. And this is incorporated in law even still in, in parts of, of the UK, for example, that static water. And because they couldn't pump groundwater fast, groundwater was seen as static, it wasn't moving. We didn't understand then that it was moving. A realization that if we think about the water cycle and we think about the way the water evaporates off the oceans and the land, goes into the atmosphere, falls as rainfall and snow on, on, onto the land surface and runs off that, that land surface back into the ocean. And that this extraordinary cycle, and it's a cycle that, that is unique, that water is unique, and it's unique because we've got liquid, gas, and solid all within 100 degrees. So we've got this unique substance that, that it, we see in all three phases in a very narrow temperature range. There isn't any other substance that does that. And that that cycle is absolutely central to all all terrestrial life on the planet, all life, and that it's a fragile cycle. And, and you could argue that, that within that cycle, what rights do we have? Now, and let's break that down for a moment. First of all, that cycle itself must be, must be regarded as a global commons that must be protected. So let's put that on the list of global commons, and that is the water cycle. Now, fresh water in that cycle that runs across the land will pass through sovereign territory. Now, within that sovereign territory, Sovereign whoever, states, 
will have rights to, to the use of that water, but will have responsibilities to ensure that that water continues along the water cycle and continues therefore downstream into the oceans perhaps or into the atmosphere and back down again. So this sense of rights and responsibilities and the importance of recognition of those responsibilities. But the importance also that we must all recognize that the rights of nations and the rights of individuals to use the water um, as it transits through the water cycle. And finally, if we're to look around the world, where would we look for some of the most important places in terms of water hotspots? Where should we be focusing and what should we be expecting in the near future? Well, for the Middle East for a very long time, there's been a water hotspot. And it's interesting because it's the Middle East was the, the Fertile Crescent was the place where Neolithic man began to harness the land and water and grow crops. And we know that. And we, we've got some of the earliest evidence of small water storage structures, storage, by the way, storage structures 10,000 years ago in, in wadis just east of um, the Dead Sea in Jordan. And we know that humans, modern humans of different species, transited through that region for thousands of years. And we also know that it, it's a climate hotspot. It's, it's an area of complexity again. And models have suggested that it's a region of the world where we will see climate forcing um, as a consequence of anthropogenic climate change. And there's evidence that we're now seeing that. And there's evidence that severe drought in the region has resulted in the movement of people. And that that movement of people has led to dispute which has degraded into conflict, the Syria story um, is pretty clear, and, and there are published journal articles that make that link very clear, from climate to um, drought, from drought to movement into cities, from movement into cities um, where there were no jobs, to strikes uh, and riots, to civil war. Another area is the, is the Tigris and Euphrates. Again, another part of the world with great civilization in the past, the, the Sumerian civilization and the the story of the Gil Gilgamesh tablets and so on, which I don't have the time to talk about now. A river that has sustained life for thousands of years, a, a river system, the Tigris and the Euphrates, the Euphrates to the south and the Tigris to the north, joining in, in the east of modern-day Iraq. The wetlands themselves largely drained, increasing salinity, saline soils, the Euphrates salinity increasing quite rapidly, um, sustainable livelihoods no longer widespread, unsustainable livelihoods locking in quite quickly. And the consequences of this, again, are rural people without the opportunity to make a sensible living. And it's a region of significant conflict today. A hotspot, undoubtedly a water hotspot where cooperation, where upstream and downstream states must work together. The solutions that, that are found will involve all of them. And if there are no solutions, everybody will suffer. There will be no winners out of these sorts of disputes. And I think we can see that right now. Other regions, we've spoken about the Indus for Pakistan, it's terribly important that Indus flows are maintained and that, that Pakistan is able to manage intense flooding and drought that the region sees regularly. Where the causes, it, this, this causes loss of life, loss of infrastructure, loss of houses and homes. So early warning systems, response methods, support to affected people, all of which are very important and the world needs to understand that Pakistan is going to need help with that too. With sea level rise and climate change, coastal cities across the world are in serious danger. And the great cities of Asia are mostly coastal. So from Mumbai to Chennai and, and Kolkata and across to Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City and the, the Chinese cities on, on, on the coast, Shanghai, 
Tianjin, and so on, and um, in, in Burma as well. All of these cities are, in, uh, are under threat, um, and we're already seeing. So, so tremendous floods in Thailand in 2011 led to very substantial loss of life. If I can remember correctly, over 4,000 people died. Very large numbers of people out of their homes. Very substantial um, economic costs in industries brought to a grinding halt. Car production down dramatically. The Honda production in the United States down by 50% because of, of the, the parts production in the, in the supply chain coming from Thailand. Toyota in Japan seeing very substantial losses. The Japanese GDP um, noticeably down as a consequence of floods in Thailand. So we're seeing spillovers from these sorts of events where an event in one country impacts the rest of the world. So globalization is being impacted by water insecurity. Another quick example, drought in Russia in 2010. August 2010, Russia banning export of grain. By the end of the year, bread prices doubling on, on the North African coast, a region where, of which has imported most of its grain from Russia, a region where the bread in the diet is, is very, it's a very substantial part of the diet. So bread prices increasing, riots linked to bread prices, riots leading to regime change in Tunisia, possibly, some would argue, possibly connecting into the Arab Spring, similar bread price riots in Egypt. It's not to say that these regimes wouldn't have fallen anyway, but, the, but these were triggers, and, and there's pretty good evidence of those triggers. So what we're seeing now is that water insecurity in one place impacts the rest of the world. What we're seeing is that if we, if we don't find solutions for Africa, we will see impacts in neighboring countries and in Europe. I've been speaking with Dr. David Gray, visiting professor of water policy at Oxford University. We've caught up here at the National Academy of Sciences at a conference called the Global Commons, looking at the planetary boundaries, of course, water being a major component. This has been another installment of Hotspots H2O, and this program was edited by Cody Pope. Read more at circleofblue.org, and thanks for joining us. I'm J. Carl Ganter.